The clinical trial, it's actually much shorter than vaccine trials because for a vaccine, you have to give it to healthy people and then wait a pretty long time to see if they get sick or not. But with an antibody drug, you can give it to people who are already sick. And we know that when you're sick with coronavirus, you either recover or you die in about 21 days or less. So it's a pretty fast readout. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast, dear friends. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and this is the show where I chat with people who saw something wrong in the world and gave a damn about it. Friends, I know this might sound like a broken record, but I am brokenhearted today, and I know many of you are. Another black man, Rayshard Brooks, was killed by a police officer a few nights ago, shot in the back several times as he ran away from police in Atlanta, Georgia. His crime? Falling asleep in a Wendy's parking lot because he knew he had too much to drink and didn't want to drive. Y'all, things are so heavy right now, and I have so much to say, but I'm trying to do more listening than talking these days. I'm trying, not always succeeding, but I'm trying. And we will continue to bring on black voices and leaders in the days and weeks ahead. We have so many incredible conversations lined up, and we have so much more to talk about and learn, but I wanted to bring you today's conversation for a very specific reason. With all the crazy shit going on, including the recent murder of Rayshard Brooks by Officer Garrett Rolfe, we forget that we are still smack dab in the middle of a global pandemic, right? Yes, things are slowly opening back up, but there are still places like Arizona where people are getting sick at a faster rate than what happened in New York City. It's not over. We don't know yet what makes it go away. There are still so many uncertainties. So I wanted to bring you some hope and some light in the midst of all this uncertainty. A few weeks ago, we had Dr. Jacob Glanville, my friend and the founder of Distributed Bio, on the show to talk about their universal flu vaccine and to talk about how they are pretty close, or they were pretty close, to finding a cure for the coronavirus. That conversation was listened to by so many people. It went everywhere. It was fascinating and hopeful. Well, today, we have more good news. On the podcast today is Sarah Ives, Jacob's colleague and the director of contract research at Distributed Bio and a principal scientist on the Centivax Universal Influenza Vaccine Program. Y'all, she is fantastic and hella smart. Now, much like the conversation with Jacob Glanville, many parts of this conversation will go right over your head. It went right over my head as well, so don't feel bad. But don't let that scare you either. Sarah gives so many dams, and I'm excited for you to get an update on the work Jake talked about in our conversation a few weeks ago. She comes with some great updates. Heads up. We did record this conversation a couple weeks ago before George Floyd was murdered, which is why we put a hold on releasing it. There were other things to talk about, other conversations to have. But every part of this conversation is still very relevant. So let's jump right in, shall we? Here's my conversation with Sarah Ives. Let's go. Sarah Ives, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We've been, as we stated before we started recording, we've been trying to do this for a couple of years. Uh, I had your colleague, your wonderful colleague, Jacob Glanville, on the show a few weeks ago. And that was, I think, partially because it was at the beginning of this, not the beginning of the pandemic, but beginning of like self-isolation and quarantining and all of that. And the work that you all are doing, it's been the most popular episode of this year so far, of 2020. People obviously just want to know what's going on. So I thought it would be wonderful to get you on, again, for multiple reasons. One is you're amazing in your own right. You have a lot going on. Two, you're part of the team, so you can give a different perspective, a different angle. And three, a lot has happened since Jacob and I talked. We were ta He was talking in that podcast very prospectively about what could happen. And so much has happened since then. So I'm super thrilled to dive in and hear more from, from your side and also just updates on from Distributed Bio, Cenovex, and all of that. So let's begin first, though, with some context for people. What's your story? Where are you from? What are the kinds of people, places, and things that shaped you into who you are today? 
Wow, that is a loaded question. I feel yeah. like oh, that's it, something. Do it, in, do it in five minutes, please. <laughs> All right. I need to consult with my therapist to figure out how I got to be who I am today. But um, <laughs> well, I guess short story is I'm a girl from Wisconsin who ended up in San Francisco being a scientist. Um, I'm just, you know, I grew up in suburban America in a small town outside of Madison, Wisconsin. I did my undergrad at University of Wisconsin. I majored in molecular biology and Middle Eastern studies and binge drinking. So basically a triple major. Um, triple major. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> not binge Wait, drinking. why? You said molecular biology and then Middle Eastern studies. What was the, what was, was there any connection there or what was attracting you to Middle Eastern studies? What was going on there? Um, well, I always, I've loved, I've always loved science since I was a kid and biology was just so fascinating to me. And the coursework is grueling. Like I liked it, but I needed something of a mental break. And I think most people's idea of a mental break would not be like more studying, but I actually, right. like, I love the intellectual pursuit. And to me, like being able to study something else besides focusing hardcore on like chemistry and physics and biology was like, sort of a release for me. It was something I could like apply my thought powers to that was fun. So I like took Arabic classes and I took political science classes and history classes. And it was just so unlike anything I'd ever learned. It was like blowing my mind that there's just so much information out there and I could learn how other people live who are extremely different from me on the opposite end of the world. And it just kind of like brought me out of that narrow-minded like um, how does plant biology work, for example, or organic chemistry? I, I got to like kind of think about other things. And I really like that. I mean, I'm sure it added extra stress because to you know, fully sure. loaded college schedule at that point. And of course, like me trying to maintain a social life and I was on the gymnastics team and, you know, I had a, um, and then the biz drinking. So you had tons of free time, right? You just had so much free time. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like to throw a good house party. Uh, do yeah. a few keg stands, but I mean, that's kind of, I feel like my college years were kind of critical in shaping who I am because it taught me to work very hard and set, um, set very high goals that other people might think are unachievable, but I never give up. And, um, it taught me how to manage my time. Not that I did it well all along. I definitely had to learn um, I had to figure out how to excel at many things at once and how to become um, sort of an expert in various fields instead of one field. And I think that helped me prepare myself for my current field where I have to know a lot of things about a lot of different things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you uh, you leave University of Wisconsin and what happens next? How, what's the What's the journey from there until kind of what you're doing today? Well, I knew I loved research and I had worked in an academic lab doing Drosophila um, genetics research. So research on fruit flies for four years. Um, and I knew I didn't want to go to the traditional PhD route and like become a professor of PI. I wanted to work in industry, like in biotech and make something that is a little bit more tangible. Not that that sort of research is not important. Um, basic academic sure. research is crucial for understanding of how to make medicines that will cure disease and how disease work. So I just wanted something that was a little bit like uh, more tangible towards like um, accessing human health um, from like a problem solving perspective. So I was looking at master's degrees where you could do um, like biotechnology programs, or, like applied biology, basically things that were more like industry focused and I toured a couple of schools. I applied to a bunch of them and I ended up settling on University of San Francisco for their master's program in biotechnology because I liked this very industry focused and you took some MBA courses, got a little bit of like the business world exposure. So um, in the summer of 2013, I packed up one suitcase and I got on a plane and I moved to San Francisco and I only knew, I think two people in the Bay area one was my best friend's brother, who's like, he was like five or six years older than me. And the other one was, well, actually two guys that I met at a frat party at Berkeley um, the prior year when I was touring University of San Francisco. 
And I didn't even know if they wanted to be friends with me. Sure. So I basically had to start over and just like build up my whole life. Like my, who will my friends be? Where will I live? What will I do? What will my hobbies be? Um, and that might be petrifying to some people, but it's exhilarating to me because I am classic extrovert, um, more type A than type B. It was just like a whole playground for me. It's like, yeah. I got to be whoever I wanted to be. And turns out I'm just the same person I was before. I just got to meet a bunch more awesome people. So that's how I ended up in San Francisco. And then in my master's program, I um, did lots of the networking stuff and I got connected up with various professors and people working in the industry. I got a couple of internships and then through a series of jobs, I ended up eventually about six months after I graduated, I quit my biotech job. I was working and then joined distributed bio to work with Jake Glanville. How did you get connected to Jake? Was that kind of a serendipitous thing or was it like a job opening? Cause it's you and Jake seem to, again, I don't know you all like we're not homies. Uh, I'd love for us to be homies, but like you seem to like click and work really well together. So how, how did that relationship happen? That work relationship? So he was, um, I think he actually still is on the scientific advisory board for the university of San Francisco. So they have these board meetings every once in a while, every couple of months and various CEOs and biotech industry leaders will kind of work with the professors of the program to design like how to best fit the program to help the students. And since he was on the scientific advisory board, he also offered to come in and help um, not teach some classes, but provide some additional support for like coming in with the professor and being like, okay, these are the tools that you're learning in lab. Like how might we apply this to like a real world industry problem? So he was working with our bioinformatics professor and he was accepting internships for like programming, basically like four to eight week internships for a computer science class. And that's how I got connected up with him. Um, so I did like a month long internship with him and he liked what I was able to do. It was just relatively short. So we kept in contact and he was also kind of mentoring for a lab class that we had in grad school. And I already had a job at about a company. I was working there basically full time while I was in school, but he was like, you know, in the future, I'm going to, in the near future, I plan to open up a lab. Um, and I would like to hire you. I just, I don't know when that will be. So we kind of kept in contact a little bit. And then about six months after I graduated, um, he gave me a job offer. And they had opened the lab. That's great. That's great. The first time I heard about Jake and Distributed Bio was in a uh, Gimlet Media podcast. So I, I I was trying to think right, right before I pushed record here. I was thinking, which one was it? I still can't remember. But I heard Jake's story. And obviously, I connected with it on a few different levels. One is the universal flu vaccine to uh, Guatemala. There's that connection, which we'll talk about here in a second, because I grew up in Guatemala. And my dad is Guatemalan. So there's a lot of like really great connections there. And, um, so, uh, what, so you are the director of contract research at, for distributed bio and you're a founding partner of Cenevax. What are those, what do those two different groups companies do? How do they play with each other? How do they relate to each other? Cause I know they're, they kind of like cross paths, but up until recently, I, the name I had seen over and over again was distributed bio. Um, so yeah, tell us how, what you're doing in those capacities and we'll get to, the universal flu vaccine. And then I want to, I want to kind of build up to the work that you all are doing right now during this pandemic to find a cure for, uh, this coronavirus. Uh, so yeah, start with what do you do for these two groups and how do they interact with each other? Yeah, sure. So distributed bio is like the mothership. It's the mothership company. It was actually founded in 2013 by three co-founders, Jake Giles and Chris. And originally, they were writing software that they could license to biotech and pharma companies to enable them to perform antibody drug discovery better and faster. Um, basically, a way to analyze large data sets of antibodies and antibody repertoires and immune systems. So they were able to be profitable from day one just by licensing this software. Sure. And then they had like a three-tiered approach where they wanted to first license software and then get enough revenue to open a wet lab 
and then use that wet lab to build an antibody library, which is basically like a physical tool that can then be sold to pharma and biotech companies to enable them to discover new antibody drugs. And then with the revenue from essentially like that services business, then Distributed Bio would launch their internal therapeutics, which would be Distributed Bio discovering new drugs and developing them. So when I joined in 2015, that was the same year that the wet lab was open. So we were basically in like stage two of that company growth projection. So we had enough money from the software to not need any venture capital funding or outside investment, but just have enough money to pay rent at like an incubator lab space. It was really small, hire a couple people. And we started building the superhuman antibody library, which is our our workhorse for discovering new antibody therapeutics. Um, We launched version one in 2016, and then we launched version two, which is a version we're still currently using in 2017. So we are essentially a services business. We license out this library to other biotech and pharma companies to enable their drug discovery. And we can also run the projects internally. So company X comes to us and says, I'm trying to cure colon cancer. We know that target Y is expressed on cells that are, you know, in colon cancer. Can you make an antibody drug against target Y so that we can um, kill off the cancer cells, essentially? Like very basic high level (laughs) terms there. Um, So they would basically, um, we would exchange um, money for drugs. (laughs) <laughs> in Perfect. the most legal way possible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we run these service projects to discover drugs for pharma and biotech companies. And we're able to get enough of a client base and enough of library licensees so that we could launch our internal therapeutics programs. And the first one of which was the universal influenza vaccine program. Um, that was and is still called Centivax. Um, Centivax, like C-E-N-T-I-V-A-X, Vax because it's a vaccine, um, Centi because, because it's universal, it could provide theoretically a hundred years of protection into the future, including future pandemic strains. Um, and since then we've launched numerous other internal therapeutics programs, all without, um, venture capital or outside investment because we are able to be profitable. And the reason that Distributed Bio is able to launch therapeutics programs without outside investment is we have this services business. And it's also a great like gate check of our technologies. Like we can't just be selling things to other biotech and pharma companies that don't work. It's like literally the opposite of Theranos. In order for our company to be successful, in order to pay the bills, the rent, the salaries, keep the lights on, we have to build things that work. So our entire program is predicated on inventing and building and implementing technologies that are unique and functional that we can then create revenue from. And that propelled us to be able to launch all these therapeutics programs. And now, since Distributed Bio is like the mothership services company, we're spinning out the therapeutic assets as their own company. Um, That company is called Centivax and Centivax houses the flu vaccine, but also everything else, our HIV vaccine. We have a universal snake antivenom antibody. We have numerous other um, therapeutic assets that are all spun out into Centivax. So that's the distinction is distributed bio is like the main company and Centivax is a spin out that now houses internal therapeutics. Um, I'm the director of contract research at Distributed Bio, so that means that I coordinate and um, oversee the execution of all of our services programs. So on the business development side, I'm involved in the price negotiation as well as writing the statement of work, like the scientific details of exactly what we agree contractually to perform. And then once everything is signed and executed with our partner, um, I oversee the execution of the projects in the lab. So um, how the experiments are done, making sure that deliverables are met, um, kind of leading the team, our lab team on um, executing on those projects. Um, But separately from that, I am the scientist project lead for the universal vaccine, our flu vaccine program. 
And that is why I've gone to Guatemala 18 times in four years and why I was on the Gimlet Media podcast and um, why my Instagram is littered with pictures of me holding cute little piggies. <laughs> I remember I, I just, just a second ago when you said that, I was like, oh, that's why I brought up Guatemala in the and the the Gimlet Media podcast before because I remember when I when I heard about you guys and I went and checked out you and Jake like the first yeah all the photos I saw were of you uh you know holding pigs in Guatemala and I was like that just looks like a fun job because you know uh anyway that's yeah that that is your pod your uh, Instagram is littered with those photos for sure yeah yeah that is accurate <laughs> And okay, so let's talk about you. You just said a lot of things that some people will understand and not understand, even though you haven't gotten into the nitty gritty. Like you said things like you guys are working on a universal flu vaccine, right? And and is is the HIV vaccine also universal? Uh, correct. Or, so yes. yeah, tell us tell us what that because that's kind of a big idea. Right now, my kids have to go every single year. Well, we all do to go get a flu vaccine every you know every new season. And some of those years, some of my kids have gotten it still, you know, cause it's like a, whatever the percentage is 50, 50, that it actually works, whatever. And, uh, you know, there's different vaccines they've had to take, but this idea of universal vaccine, does it really mean universal? Like explain that to us. Yeah. So first I guess I'll describe in kind of general terms, what, what is a flu vaccine and what does it do? Yeah. So uh, the flu vaccine is a seasonal vaccine, um, meaning that you have to get it every year. And that's because the flu virus mutates sufficiently enough each year that the immune response that you generated last year is rendered obsolete for the following year because mutation in the virus makes the virus look so different to your immune system that it doesn't recognize it anymore. Um, this is common in viruses that rapidly mutate which would be things like um, HIV, flaviviruses, you know, things like Zika, dengue. So um, rapidly mutating viruses tend to evade vaccine responses. And that's why we don't have good vaccines for many rapidly mutating viruses. We have vaccines that work temporarily, like the in seasonal influenza vaccine. So you have to get the flu vaccine every year, and it's a combination of usually three to four different main circulating strains. Um, it's usually an H1N1 and H3N2 and two HAB strains is the, like the scientific terminology of those. And the researchers that are developing the vaccine basically have to guess what the most dominant strain will look like for the next season. Wow. And Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. It's really hard to predict these things. Sure. But even if they are right, the vaccine could be a match for like the first half of winter, but then it could mutate enough so that by the second half of winter, the vaccine isn't as effective anymore. Um, so it's really tricky. And then that's just the seasonal flu. But there's also, well, now we know what a pandemic was. If I were recording this podcast six months ago, this would be more of a far off concept. Sure. But the flu can mutate a little, which is what it usually does, or it can mutate a lot. And when that happens, um, it's something called antigenic shift happens. So it's a major recombination of the genes in influenza that cause the surface coat proteins to look dramatically different than they ever have before. So any immune response we have at all from seasonal flu vaccines are completely obsolete in a pandemic. So there have been various flu pandemics. I think the last major one was in 1968. It was an H3N2. Right. And before that, it was H1N1 in 1918. I mean, there was one in 2009, but um, luckily that one didn't have a very high mortality rate. But these, these will happen periodically every you know, 20, 50, or 100 years throughout the course of human history, there is an influenza pandemic. And when that happens, the seasonal flu vaccine, which looks basically like last year's vaccine, isn't going to protect against a pandemic. So the idea of a universal flu vaccine is one that could provide protection not only for seasonal flus and future seasonal flus, but also a future pandemic. So when there's a major change in the way that the virus looks to your body, we want to make sure that the vaccine will still protect you. 
Um, and that is quite the engineering challenge. And many groups have been working on this for you know, 10, 15 years. We think that influ- or universal is sort of a buzzword because universal means you know, every flu possible. Um, we like to use the term broad spectrum. Um, broad spectrum is used in, for example, antibiotics. Like if you have to get Cipro, it's a broad spectrum antibiotic. It will kill most bacteria. It won't kill all, um, but it will work for most. And that's what our flu vaccine is designed for. We want it to work enough so that it can protect against seasonal flus as well as future pandemics, which is really, really tricky. Um, so far, all influenza, all universal influenza vaccine attempts have failed at providing truly universal neutralizing protection. Our vaccine, we think, is the game changer there. Hmm. We have sufficient data from our studies in Guatemala to suggest that we actually can provide robust neutralizing protection against influenza, um, including pandemic strains. We can get into the details of how we know that, I guess. Well, I, I honestly would like, would like to know, and maybe, you know, maybe use terms that like all this is super helpful, but, uh, yeah, I I would like to know how, how do you know, how, how does this, how does this work? This is interesting to me. And I think it's interesting to people because we are, we are in hearing this podcast again, different than six months ago, we're hearing it in the middle of a pandemic where the future is very uncertain. And you're saying there's a thing that we're creating. We think we've, we think we know how to do this well after many failed attempts by other groups that could, that could protect you from future, you know, seasonal flu strains, but also from future pandemics like that. It just seems so foreign to me and probably to many people listening. So I would love to, anything you want to share would be, I think would be super helpful. Yeah, sure. So we are, so our, our paper is currently like in submission and review phases. So we'll have much more detail to share publicly, um, likely pretty soon. Like sure. we're, we're publishing all of our results, all of our methods. Basically it's an open book um, because that's, I mean, uh, reproducibility and, and credibility are our currency in science. So we obviously want this in as many people's hands as possible. Yes. Um, but right now, so what we do know is influenza is decorated by these proteins on the surface. And when you are exposed to influenza, you can develop antibodies, which are an immune protein that will um, essentially coat and stick to the surface coat proteins to stop infection. And most of the the surfaces on those coat proteins change very rapidly um, from year to year, which is why the immune response doesn't work. Um, But it has been shown by groups since like 2004, 2005, that there are sites on those surface coat proteins that actually don't change Hmm. and that antibodies that target those sites actually do confer broad, long-lasting protection. So these studies have already been performed and they've been published and and well-validated. But the question has always been, well, why don't we hit those sites that don't change from year to year if they exist? And there's been lots of interesting theories thrown out there. Some seem like they have more grounding than others. Um, but we we applied like a computational brute force method to assess, okay, why do vaccines fail? Why don't we target the sites that don't change from year to year? Why do we always hit the parts that change? And what we found is, I mean, we'll find, you can read more in our paper soon, um, but it's essentially a numbers game that the areas that, change from year to year, just vastly outnumber the areas that don't. And we've actually now quantified that exactly um, through various computational like protein-protein docking studies. And then we developed our vaccine to be able to target those sites that don't change. Hmm. And that is allowed us to show that we can it's basically agnostic to the seasonal strain or the pandemic strain because our vaccine will sort of respond. So we'll always target those conserved areas on the protein. 
And we tested this out in multiple animal studies by pretending it was the year 2008. And we used information as if scientists, ha as scientists had in 2008. So we knew the sequences of every influenza from 1918 through 2008. And we developed our vaccine and then we administered it to pigs. And then we had various controls, like a negative control that received salt water and a positive control that received like the standard pig seasonal flu vaccine. And then in order to test for future protection, I tested the, um, the serum samples from these pigs on viruses from 2009 through 2017, including the H1N1 swine flu um, pandemic from 2009, where there was that major antigenic shift event where um, seasonal flu vaccines could not bridge that gap. Basically, they failed to elicit protection against H1N1 2009. But we showed that our Centivax flu vaccine actually worked. So we had protection not only in that shift from 2008 to 2009, but all the way out to um, 2017. And by protection, I actually mean, well, there's two ways that we could quantify it. There was one, taking the sera and making sure that it um, can like bind or stick to a panel of future influenza surface coat pr proteins. And also I could check that that sera could neutralize and kill live influenza virus, which was quite an interesting assay because I had to grow 12 different influenza viruses in the lab and <laughs> um, and obviously try not to like get myself sick, which I didn't because it's all in biocontainment and biosafety level um, procedure. But yeah, those are essentially the assays. And we were able to show that our Centivax 2008 flu vaccine could um, neutralize and kill future strains 10 years into the future, including a pandemic strain. Wow. I mean, I, I feel like I just drank from a fire hose, um, a, a, like in, in, in the best kind of way. Like I didn't understand 80% of what you said, but I felt, but you explained it in a way that I'm like, oh, like that's some really cool shit. That's some really like monumental stuff. Like I'm sure you, you're in it every day for me on the outside, not, not having anything to do with these disciplines that you've, you know, been taught and you've kind of been working on. Like, this just feels so humongous. Do you feel how humongous this is? Like, do you feel how big it is? Or do you just feel kind of you're in the nitty gritty each and every day? It's a mix. Sometimes, I mean, most of the time my head is just down and I'm like scribbling math into my lab notebook and I'm banging my head because I'm like, oh, why isn't this working? Or how do I optimize this assay? Or like, oh, my shipment got stuck in Guatemalan customs and I need to figure this out. And, but every once in a while, we take a step back. We're like, wow, we achieved something truly remarkable here. And there've been a couple very like strong memories of those points. Like one was when I first ran the assay, like our first shipment of pig blood that we got back from Guatemala where I was testing, does it stick to all the surface coat proteins that I'm expecting? And the plate just like lit up blue, because that's the assay, blue is good, clear is bad. And I was like, oh my God, it worked. Like we've been working for, at that time it was months on this. And we had traveled down to Guatemala multiple times. We'd spent a lot of money. Like we had hired a whole team in Guatemala. We had bought all these pigs. We had raised them. Like we really hoped it wasn't all for naught. And that at that point, we just had no idea. It was just like yeah. a computational theory and all these people were invested and all this time was invested. And I, and I saw those results and we were like, Oh my God, it's, working. that's amazing. It was, I, I will never forget that moment. It was like Friday, 8 PM in the lab. I had been running these Eliza's all day. Eliza is the name of the assay. And I just, it was like, it, it was an incredible yeah, feeling. It's got to feel like, like, like a million bucks. Like that's gotta yeah. feel so, so good. Yeah. So, so you guys are, I'm skipping over so much. We'll, we'll maybe get another chance to talk. You're like so busy and you're like, I only have an hour. I'm so sorry. So I want to make sure we get it all in right now. Um, cause you have a lot going on. So you and Jake and your team, but I've, I've seen more of you and Jake have been in the media and the news quite a bit the last couple of months because 
you all shifted a lot of what you're working on to try to to try to fix what's currently going on, right? Uh, tell us about what your uh, I, I remember seeing something from you and Jake recently that you guys have been testing, and I'll let you tell what you've been testing. But that you're that you it's confirmed that you could you are working on something that could potentially neutralize this uh, coronavirus. So when did you guys start working on that? When did you say we got to put what we're doing on hold, or maybe not on hold completely, but whatever? We're going to put this sort of on the back burner. This is more pressing. Obviously, this is a big pandemic. And what's what's been happening the last couple of months? Because I know you guys have been working your asses off to try to get this done. So tell me about the last couple of months. Very exciting stuff. Yeah. So on January 29th, Jake was, well, okay. First of all, January 22nd, the Netflix documentary pandemic. Yes. yes. So my, there's basically my life can be separated into two segments. There's <laughs> before there's the, <laughs> there's the 29 years before like, yeah, basically 29 and a half years before the Netflix pandemic show happened. And then there's the couple of months since, <laughs> since <then>. it happened <laughs> because life is so different. So, um, yeah, so the show released on the 22nd and that was actually the day, I believe it was the day that Wuhan initiated lockdown or within 24 hours. Yeah, I that. remember that. Yep. So that was crazy. And then on the 29th, uh, Jake was in Washington DC because he was meeting with BARDA and various other um, government like Department of Defense, bioterror related groups just for like an annual meeting about like um, tech, current technologies. And they wanted to understand how the technologies at distributed bio could potentially be useful to the military and other government groups for creating um, rapid response medicines to emerging pathogens, bioterror threats, etc. So Jake was at this meeting and it was happened to be coronavirus focused, like on the fly because all this information was coming in from China and they kind of, they just changed the focus of the meeting. And um, Jake noticed that Anthony Fauci wasn't shaking anyone's hand and people were very concerned. And they, there was just this consensus feeling that things were going to get much worse in America, even though it hadn't hit yet. So Jake flew back that week, I think it was like Thursday. And he was like, you guys, there's going to be there's going to be a pandemic um, right now. It's just in Wuhan, but it's, it's going to get out. We need to start working on a cure right now because time is not on our side. So we put the engineering pieces together. We ordered a bunch of DNA. Um, we did all this research into literature to look at um, people that had recovered from SARS and if they had produced antibodies that were protective against infection. And turns out there's a whole bunch of published research. Um, there's online databases that have these um, information on these antibodies. And we are able to find um, five different antibodies that have been pulled out of people who recovered from SARS. They have been well characterized um, over many years to be shown to be neutralizing against SARS and provide protection in animal models when the animals are basically sprayed in the face with SARS and the, they provide protection. So they work against SARS. So we basically synthesized these antibodies in our laboratory and we checked as a first pass, do they work against SARS-CoV-2, which is the new pandemic virus? Most of them, the answer was no. Some of them, there was like a little bit of reactivity, but it was weak. So these aren't good therapeutics for the new um, coronavirus pandemic, but that is specifically what distributed bio has, is we're basically experts in is developing, designing and optimizing antibody drugs to fit with new and different targets. So we took each one of those five starting antibodies and we created 1 billion variants of each of the five and we used wet lab selection pressures, like directed evolution, to adapt the initial antibodies to fit with the new uh, pandemic coronavirus. And we were basically able to get rid of everything that was crappy, that didn't end up like sticking to it well. And then we can pull down and extract the ones that are adapted to fit the best with the new um, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 strain. And since then, we've done, uh, well, we completed all of that engineering in about eight to nine weeks, which is lightning fast. Normally, 
this should take six to 18 months. With the distributed biotechnology, specifically Tumblr, we would expect it to take about three to four months. Um, but we went like full steam ahead. We put a few projects on pause. We had uh, people coming in in shifts. So basically always somebody in the lab working on it. And by the end of week nine, we were done and we were um, into high throughput characterization of all these thousands of potential therapeutic candidates. So in the last couple of months, we've narrowed that down to a list of about 48. And then since then, we've narrowed that down even further to a set of about five most promising leads. And we've done that by characterizations that we can do in our lab that don't involve any live virus. And also by sending these out to now it's been four independent groups and they've all taken our antibodies and tested them on um, like it's called a neutralization assay. So they are using live coronavirus. This is BSL-4, biosafety level four. They're basically like in a lab in spacesuits and they have to test, does this antibody kill live coronavirus? And if so, how little amount of antibody is needed because the smaller amount, the better, because that means it's more potent. So we are able to narrow it down to about five that are extremely potent neutralizers of coronavirus. And those five are now being tested by those same groups in um, hamsters. So they spray the hamsters with coronavirus. So they get sick, they start developing um, like uh, lung pathology, and then they dose them with our antibody to see if they can um, recover um, become fully healthy again, and basically, are they protected from the coronavirus? And we are eagerly awaiting those results. We will have them very soon. Um, and it's basically just confirmation that our antibodies are potent and very effective. So it's been about, actually it's been exactly five months since we started this. And we are just so thrilled at the speed that we are able to run these. Um, we've had an amazing team of people working on this. And the crazy thing is while we were doing this, we only actually paused the other programs for about two weeks. We are still running all of our service projects for clients. We're still launching our next round of studies for the flu vaccine. Um, we're able we're just able to work very efficiently and very quickly because we have like a, a small, like lean, efficient team where we work in shifts and we can basically pump out these results as quickly as possible. And now it's kind of the fun, by fun, I mean also major headache, but the fun part of now that we have these leads really well characterized, now we need to initiate, um, large-scale manufacturing so that we have enough doses for a clinical trial. And that's it's tough because scaling up for enough people is definitely the limiting factor, but it's a good place to be in. And that's where we're at now. Yeah. So how does that work? Let's just say, obviously this is a big if, because you don't know, you know, you're still getting results back. Things are, you're waiting right now to see if that's going to work, but it, let's just say everything comes back in the way that you want to see it. How does that even, like, I, I'm, it's, it's so foreign to me. Like, how do you then create enough for, for a lot of people, right? I mean, uh, people are, as, as people get back to work, you know, they're going to feel way more comfortable when there's a cure and a vaccine for this coronavirus, right? Because then we can just go out back, you know, we can go back to ball games and go back to big concerts and whatever things that people are looking forward to, you know, two or 12 months from now. How does that work? How does that happen? Yeah, so... Vaccines and antibodies are quite different. Um, the way that an antibody is produced, I guess the best analogy I have would be, have you ever gone on a brewery tour? Yeah. Oh yeah. Or a winery tour. Yep. So you go in their production facility and there's these huge stainless steel, like cylindrical vats. Um, those vats are um, growing yeast yep. and those yeast cells are involved in the process of fermentation, which produces the delicious alcohol in the beer. 
Um, so it's basically single-celled organisms that need to grow in a lot of liquid in order to produce something. It's the same thing for antibody drugs, or at least it's similar, where we have a single cell that is genetically engineered to pump out antibody. And that one single cell first needs to be created. So we need to genetically engineer that cell so that it produces our antibody drug with a specific genetic sequence of the antibody that we want. Once we have that single cell, we need to expand it to millions and millions and millions and billions of versions of basically copies of that exact single cell with the exact genetic sequence. So you start from one cell um, and you have to culture it or grow it in many, many liters of liquid culture so that you have millions and billions of these cells that will each be pumping out your antibody. So then you have this like slurry mixture of cells and antibody and other proteins involved in um, cellular growth. And then you need to purify it so that you only have pure antibody and nothing else, no cells, no other proteins, no liquid media or liquid culture remaining. It's just pure antibody in salt water. And that whole process is highly regulated um, by the FDA and various um, ordinances so that it is very high quality material that can be injected into a human and be safe. Um, we know antibody drugs are very safe, but we still have to go through all the strict procedures of generating that single cell, making sure that genetic material is exactly what we think, expanding it in a very regulated fashion so that each additional cell is exactly what we think, and then just expanding that up in enough um, liters of liquid, enough of these huge bioreactors so that we can then purify it and back into tiny little tubes that contain the antibody. And then those need to get separated into, you know, like single um, doses for enough people and go through all the quality control so that we know that it meets the standards that would be sufficient for injecting into a human. Um, we luckily don't need to do that in-house. There are many different uh, groups that we can actually pay to do that for us. And that that's what we're doing. So we have a partner lined up for large scale uh, manufacturing of the drug. And I am so glad that that's not something that I need to figure out. We just hand that yeah. off to the experts and they take a, they take care of it. And that's very common in, in drug discovery. You people that do the initial drug discovery, then hand it off to um, an expert who can do the manufacturing. That's fantastic. Thanks for that. Super helpful. Indulge me for a minute or don't and say, let's move on, but indulge me for a minute. If everything goes well, based on what you just shared, like what, what could a potential, nobody's going to hold you to this, but what is it like a potential timeline for this being available to virtually anyone who needs a cure needs to be cured from the coronavirus? Or is that not even like in your consideration right now? Cause a million things could go awry. Yeah, yeah. So we, we've we actually already begun the manufacturing process. Ultimately, we'll only move forward with one, but because we have five right now and we're waiting on happy hamster data, we just move forward with all five, knowing that we'll throw four of them away. Um, so it costs more money, but we like to say money is cheaper than time right now. So yeah. we are going ahead at risk on all five, um, we anticipate a clinical trial, so the phase one clinical trial, to begin at the end of the summer or early fall, so hopefully by September. Um, we are currently lining up the details of that study and finalizing them. Um, most of the pieces are already in place for that. Um, that will hopefully start in September. Uh, the clinical trial, it's actually much shorter than vaccine trials because for a vaccine, you have to give it to healthy people and then wait a pretty long time to see if they get sick or not. Yep. But with an antibody drug, you can give it to people who are already sick. And we know that when you're sick with coronavirus, you either recover or you die 
in about 21 days or less. So it's a pretty fast readout. So we get a patient population who is already sick yep. and then we monitor how well they do. Is it, is it curing them faster than they would if they had no treatment or had the standard of care, which at this time I think isn't anything other than potentially remdesivir in certain cases. So considering that there aren't any good treatments out there, um, we don't have anything to compare it to. So we'll know right away, are they getting better than if they didn't receive the drug? So these trials are very quick. Um, we still need to run them on a lot of people, um, but we'll know pretty quickly into the sure. trial how well it's doing. And at that point, we are going to release it um, under, there's something called emergency use or compassionate use. Um, there's these various distinctions where even if a drug hasn't gone through the traditional phase one, two, and three clinical testing, you can release it after you've shown safety and efficacy in humans if it's a dire situation like a pandemic. Um, that's been used in the Ebola crisis and um, various other um, times when there's a virus and an antibody drug has shown to be effective in humans. I, 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 this is the worst way to say this, but like, fortunately you may have a lot of, well, they're predicting this, they're predicting this second wave, right? Which, I mean, if the clinical trials are in September, all the things I've seen, which again, this is not my, like, this is not my lane, but I've seen that, well, we're going to get a second wave, you know, end of summer, beginning of autumn. So there may be lots of people to, you know, that really, really need it at that time to be part of this, uh, you know, clinical trial or whatever. Super fascinating stuff. Man, there's so many directions we could take, but we have just a few minutes left. So what I want to do is kind of shift now as we begin to kind of wind this down. I want to get personal for a minute. We've we've talked about all your work and how you got there, and it's it's really incredible. But I, I, I kind of want to dig in because you, you know, I have a wide uh, variety of guests on the show that are giving a damn in a wide variety of ways. Uh, I think you and Jake were the first, like, scientists were the first people of this type that I've had on the show and it's happening during this pandemic. So I'm curious, uh, and I'm, I'm not looking for anything like deep or remarkable. I'm just, I'm, I want to dig in a little bit and like, how did you, I guess I get, how, how do I ask this for, for this particular thing that you're doing? Like, how did, did you ever imagine that you'd be working on something that could potentially change the world? And has that changed who you are as a person? Cause you're obviously again, working on something that could change the course of, you know, people being sick in the world. Like that is a huge, huge thing. So did you ever imagine that? Or, or when did you really realize kind of the, the, the tremendous nature of what you're doing? And again, were, were you already somebody that gave a damn before and really cared about these things? Or did that kind of happen in the last like five, six years since joining the team? Kind of give me, give me a peek behind the, the lab coat as it were, and like who you are as a person. Yeah, I think my, my realization of how my actions affect others, both the people close to me and the people that I haven't met, has kind of um, changed over time. I think just in general, kids have a very bad perception of that. <laughs> and then, you know, as you get older, you start to learn how what you do affects other people. And I think early on, maybe around the time towards the end of my undergrad, when I knew I really wanted to focus in on science and biology and research, I was really interested in this idea of healthcare and being able to help people. Um, I knew that med school and nursing and all that was not cut out for me because I don't really like dealing with other people's gross thoughty stuff. <laughs> that's, that's, um, that's fair. That's really fair. Um, but I just, I really wanted to do something that could tangibly help people, at least tangibly in my mind. Like I know many other people work in jobs that are incredibly useful for the world to function, but I wanted to make medicine. That's what I wanted to do. So that's why I got into biotech and it's still a little bit like ethereal at that point. Like you're just studying and you're learning all these molecular biology pathways and the idea of actually helping somebody who's sick is, is really just an idea. It wasn't until I started working at Distributed Bio and we were 
doing these flu studies in Guatemala and I was testing the pig blood in my lab and I was seeing how good it looked. And I was reading all these papers about what other people were trying for universal vaccines and how they were like marginally okay, but like didn't work that well. And I was like, wait, this is different. Mm. I'm doing something that is like, this is like a new milestone in, in vaccine science. Like we figured out why vaccines fail against rapidly mutating viruses. And we came up with a workable solution with influenza as a case study, but it's not just influenza. Like this technique could apply to other rapidly mutating viruses too, like HIV, like dengue, like Zika, things like that, like coronaviruses, which was on our radar all along. And I was like, wow, I could actually be part of something. It, least in a small way that could be a vaccine that could actually help people and prevent a pandemic, you know, and then a couple of years go by and then we have this pandemic and now we're making a therapy and it's just like a shockwave all over again. It's like, I'm going to potentially help with multiple things, including this COVID drug, which is really exciting. I'm just so honored to be a part of it. And it, what I've learned from this process is it doesn't just take one person giving a damn. It takes a whole team. Mm -hmm. Um, We've been able to achieve this because we have a remarkable group of very dedicated and talented engineers on our team. Um, Jake has obviously been our fearless leader all along who has driven this process and came up with the idea. Um, And we've also had numerous scientists that have really stepped up to achieve something that um, very few groups have even come close to Mm. achieving or trying to achieve. And I'm just, I'm very humbled and proud to be on such a team. And it's just very thrilling to know that we are so close. There's like so many things that need to fall into place perfectly for this to happen. But we're on the right track and I'm just, I'm so thrilled about it. Well, I am very grateful for your work. We're grateful for your work. Um, and I'm, I'm just so excited to, you know, know you and just kind of get to observe from the, t- the sidelines, what you all are doing. It's really fascinating. Um, very grateful. Uh, before, before we kind of end, I want to, uh, bring, I want to tie up, put a ribbon on this conversation, put a bow on this conversation with Guatemala, because that's a connection point that you and I have. We mentioned it earlier, but I'll just ask this. We could talk probably for hours about Guatemala. Maybe we'll go to Guatemala someday. Um, I I miss it so badly. Like it's, I don't think we'll ever move there. I've got three kids and I'm in the middle of like, you know, career stuff and it just wouldn't work from there. But I've I've daydreamed daydreamed about moving back there, at least for a little bit, because I just miss it so much. But what are your people can probably find some of your favorite things by looking at your Instagram or whatever, but like, what are your favorite things about that amazing little country? I would say my number one favorite thing is the people, Mm. the connections that I've made there over the past four years have been just eye opening. It's when I went there four years ago, I hadn't yet been to any other countries other than Canada. So, and, and obviously the U S and since then I've now been to probably more than 12 or 15 countries, but it was like my first experience interacting with people that were not at all like me. And I loved it again, you know, classic extrovert. I just want to make as many friends as possible that may not be like me. Um, and I was able to, so one issue I have with just like traveling and exploring is that you don't, spend enough time with the people and the places to develop a connection. But because I spent so much time in Guatemala, I was actually able to make friends with and create deeper connections with the people that were there. And having that like kind of home away from home was, is, was really awesome. And I, I miss all the people there a lot. Um, I really hope I can go back and, um, see them when all this this whole crisis is over. But other than the people, Guatemala is just an amazing, beautiful place. It's so I, fucking gorgeous. It's yeah. So good. It, I found out that I love hiking volcanoes. I think I've hiked eight or nine volcanoes in Guatemala. Love it. Yeah, I found out that 
it's sort of like a passion of mine. And now I hike all the time and, you know, I get altitude sickness, but I deal with it and yeah. it's just, it's worth it. I've, I've, <laughs> I've been to the top of most of Guatemala's volcanoes and it's, there's nothing like it. You're, I mean, just, it's not, cause it's not a, it's, it feels different than climbing a mountain. Like you're on this, this humongous destruction machine that, you know, whether it's dormant or alive, you know, like it, it still just feels, it's way different than any other kind of hiking or climbing a mountain. Yeah. I mean, what a way to recharge, you know, you're stuck in your work all day, you're staring at a screen and then you can go like do a night hike above volcano at 14,000 feet above sea level, not have any oxygen. It's 50 mile per hour winds at the top, just like whipping your face off and you smell the sulfur and you can even see volcanoes erupting in the distance. It's just like, it's what a wake up call to what the world is. It's just amazing to see all that nature and then be able to do it with awesome people. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Uh, well, I look forward someday for you and Jake and me to share a drink and talk more about these things. I, I can't promise any keg stands, but I will. Uh, we can just we can just drink them normally at a brewery or something. Um, I'm too old for I'm too old for those co- that college shit now. But um, thank you so much for the work you're doing, and thank you for taking an hour out of your busy day to share with us. I know that even though most people listening to this, a lot of it will go over their heads like it did mine. Uh, it it'll, it it gives me hope that something is happening. I might not understand it all, and I'll wrestle through it as I re-listen later as I'm getting it ready to go out. But something's happening. Big things are happening, and that to me gives me so much hope. So thanks for being a part of that, and uh, we'll connect again soon. Great, it was my pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. We'll talk soon. That's the show today, friends. A huge thanks to Sarah Ives for joining me on the show, and thanks to all of you for listening. I created this show. Chad Snavely produced it. Let's Give a Damn is part of the Matter Media family. Sending so much love and peace to each one of you. Stay safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.